Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue Dr. John Newfeld's series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men. So let's join Dr. Newfeld as we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 to 16, for a message entitled, Mixed Marriages. There are a lot of different definitions of what constitutes a mixed marriage. A dictionary definition of a mixed marriage is a marriage between persons of different racial, ethnic, or religious groups. Now, while technically that does describe a mixed marriage, but I hope you can see that there is a vast difference between a marriage of different racial groups and a marriage of a different faith. People of different racial backgrounds might have everything in common, but people of the same race who might have grown up a kilometer from each other but don't share a common faith, well, they truly have so very little in common of what's essential and what's important. See, the Bible nowhere condemns marriages between people of different racial backgrounds. There are some very famous Bible examples of that. According to Numbers 12, Moses was married to a Cushite woman. Now, Cush was the land that was south of Egypt, and hence, this was a black woman. According to the book of Numbers, Miriam and Aaron failed to accept this and spoke against Moses and his Cushite wife, and the Lord struck Miriam with leprosy. And in Matthew 1, we learn that Rahab, the converted prostitute from the city of Jericho, a Canaanite woman who later married a Jewish man named Selman, became a direct descendant of Jesus. Same is true of Ruth, the, the Moabite woman who married a Jewish man named Boaz. All these marriages were blessed by God. See, the Bible does not frown on these marriages. Rather, the Bible celebrates them. But, and this is key, the Bible celebrates them not because they're mixed marriages, but because these Gentiles converted to the God of Israel, and because these Gentiles were then included into Israel, and therefore these Gentiles were considered married within Israel. On the other hand, Solomon's marriages to foreign women are openly condemned, for he married women who were committed to a pagan faith. Racial background is never an exclusion when it comes to marriage. But marriages between people of different faiths is treated very differently in the Bible. In the First Testament, that's abundantly plain. I'm reading Deuteronomy 7, 3-4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the Second Testament reaffirms that same principle, and I'm reading 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? In 2 Corinthians, it doesn't specifically mention marriage to an unbeliever, but it is implied. The image of being yoked is a picture of two animals yoked together, let's say, to pull a plow. It implies close attachment and a common task. The Bible forbids intimate attachment with non-believers, and clearly in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul has a wider view than simply restricting marriages. He might also have included other legal arrangements in which close intimacy with unbelievers came about. But marriage is surely included in his instruction. No Christian believer is permitted to marry an unbeliever. And so the clear teaching of Scripture is a simple one to understand. Any follower of Christ can only marry within the faith. 
And for this reason, throughout my ministry, I have strongly urged young people not even to date someone who does not cling to Christ as Savior and Lord. Do not date a non-Christian, and the reason should be obvious. I mean, we can fall in love with the person we're dating, and such a marriage would be forbidden by God. Dating non-Christians has often led Christians to abandon their first love for Christ. And furthermore, in our culture, what adds to the seriousness of this is that most non-Christians now simply assume that sexual relations are a part of dating. Now, that alone should exclude dating the majority of unbelievers. And so we see just one more area where the culture of the believer is in conflict with the wider culture in which we live. But having said that, we need to recognize a reality. There are numerous mixed marriages, that is, marriages where believers' partners are not a Christian. And that's so for a number of reasons. A Christian may marry a non-Christian while the believer is going through a season of rebellion. Now, later they may repent, but the marriage is now done. Another more common example is that one of the partners in a marriage may convert and the other does not. You know, in that case, upon conversion, there is immediately a mixed marriage. And there are biblical examples of just that. Acts 16 verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, that way of putting it seems to indicate that the father was not a believer. Now, that's further highlighted in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, where Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Again, the lack of mention of Timothy's father tells us that this was a mixed marriage, the kind where Timothy's mother is a believer, but his father is not. And what's to be done in such cases? Should the believer remain in that kind of a marriage, or should they seek to end it? If God's will is for the believer to marry a believer— What is God's will when such a marriage does not exist? Now, with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the believer or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, before we look at the details of these commands, I think it's important to clear up a misconception. Some people, without understanding what they're reading, assume here that Paul is giving his personal opinion and not the Word of God. I mean, they read back in verse 10, where Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, and then we have a bracket in our English translation which adds the words, not I. That is, it's not I who give this command, but it's the Lord who gives it. And then when we go two verses later in verse 12, which is a part of of the text we've just read, he says, to the rest, I say, and then again the brackets, I, not the Lord. So if on the one hand, he gives a command from the Lord, and then later one that is not from the Lord, some wrongly understand that here we must have a part of the Bible that's not given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
But that's simply not the case. When Paul says, I don't give this command, but the Lord gives it, he means that he's citing the plain teaching of Jesus while he was on earth. He says, I didn't say this. Jesus taught this, and it was recorded. It's like a footnote in which Paul wants to make sure that we understand that he is referencing Jesus. And then when he says, I, not the Lord, he's saying in the next section, the Lord Jesus didn't teach on this matter while on earth, but I am adding to the teaching of Jesus in my role as an apostle. Well, why didn't Jesus teach on the matter of a believer married to an unbeliever? And the answer should be obvious. The church had not yet begun, and once the church began and Gentiles were being converted and persecution was often attached to being a believer, for once it became clear how different the culture of Christ actually was from the wider culture of the world, and it became clear that many non-believers would find the gospel offensive. They would leave their marriage not wanting a believing spouse, especially in a culture where divorce was easily obtained. And so writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is able to add a teaching to the teaching of Jesus. He can because he's an apostle. So according to verses 12 to 14, if the unbeliever wants to carry on with the marriage, even though it has now become a mixed marriage where the two of them do not share a common faith and a common passion to love and cling to Jesus beyond all other things, Yet the unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage. The believer is commanded not to divorce the unbeliever. Now, I must add something that should be rather obvious. This is not a permission slip for a believer to marry an unbeliever. I mean, I I sometimes hear the rationale. My boyfriend is okay with me being a Christian. He says he will respect my Christian faith, so I think it should be fine. Well, listen, sister, of course he's going to respect your faith. I mean, after all, you've already told him that you'd be willing to disobey your faith in order to marry him. And so he rightfully assumes that he is more important than your faith because he knows he is. He knows that you will compromise your faith for him. So what objection could he have to that kind of a faith? Now, this is a passage primarily related to a case where one partner in the marriage converts and the other does not. It teaches what Christians should do then. As is characteristic with expositional Bible teaching, the tough stuff just can't be avoided. God's Word speaks to real issues of life and living, even in the area of mixed marriages. And it speaks into how we as Christians ought to respond. Dr. Neufeld continues in just a moment. What is the Gospel? Well, this may be the most critical question anyone could ask in their lifetime. What is the gospel? What is the good news? What is it that Jesus did on the cross? What does a relationship with Jesus mean for my future? So many questions that impact our lives today and for eternity. Whether you're a believer or you're searching for the truth about Jesus, Dr. Neufeld's booklet, What is the Gospel, is for you. And for all those who've never contacted us before, We want to make the booklet available to you for free. No shipping, no handling. In fact, we'd like to send you two, one for yourself and one for a friend. So if you've never contacted us before, call us today to receive your copy of What is the Gospel? Call 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.
What should a believer do when married to an unbeliever? Paul says do two things. First, seek a lifelong positive relationship with your unbelieving spouse. Stay in the marriage. Verse 12 teaches us that believers are not the ones to break up homes. We bring healing, not woundedness. We bring peace, not war. We bring reconciliation, not contention. We save marriages. We don't wreck them. If the unbeliever wants to stay, let him or let her. See, I once knew a man whose wife and, and two daughters came to Christ, and he was delighted. I asked him why, and he said, well, they went to church on Sunday mornings. That was perfect. I could watch football on Sunday mornings without being disturbed now. I mean, what a great religion. And besides, she's so much nicer than she was before. I mean, something of what she got made our marriage better. Yep. If the believer wants to stay, no matter what for, let him. Seek the peace of the relationship. Respect the marriage. Now to verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this verse is one of the difficult verses of the Bible. What does it mean? Well, we can rule out a number of possibilities. We can rule out that verse 14 is speaking about salvation. No, unbeliever can be saved because they're married to a believer. Okay, what possibilities are left? Well, we do know that the verse tends to take on a somewhat Old Testament flavor. For instance, in the Old Testament law, there's a long process of ritually cleansing all articles that were used for worship. There are also very specific laws as to what happens when something that's ritually clean touches something which is considered ritually unclean. In that case, the unclean article is not made clean, but rather the clean article is now considered unclean or defiled. Kind of like dropping clean food on a dirty floor. The floor doesn't become clean by the contact. It's the other way around. The food is made dirty. So it is with ritually clean articles. But here in this verse, Paul turns it around. The unclean article is the husband or the wife that does not believe, and they touch their spouse that has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And what is left, says Paul, is a kind of contagious holiness. The gospel is lived out, and it's explained in that home. The believer begins to pray for his wife or the wife for the husband. Children are sometimes led to Christ and begin to serve him. My friend was so happy to see his wife going off to church so he could watch football. Well, finally, something happened to him. He gave his life to Christ. You know, I've seen many a believing spouse have great influence on his or her family. Sometimes a wife has prayed for her husband 10, 20, or even 30 more years, and then suddenly it's as if the heavens part and God's glory settles in. But even where that doesn't happen, there's a kind of covering of blessing. Call it a natural grace. Falls on the unbeliever. God is determined to bless that union because of the believer. That unbeliever's marriage is different because of his or her believing spouse. But what does Paul mean when he says, otherwise your children would be unclean? And I think the answer is the same. Contagious holiness not only affects the spouse, but the children. God's purity is pervasive. Recognize if your spouse is not a believer that God has called you to pray, to model, and to bless. But don't leave. Now to verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. It's important to read 1 Corinthians 7.15 in context. 
I once met a man who claimed his unbelieving spouse left him, and so he was free to remarry. A little bit of work discovered that she left him because he was an abusive man, not because he was a believer. 1 Corinthians 7.15 is addressed in a context when being a believer often carried with it the ultimate price. Believers were often roundly hated in the ancient world. Remember, Paul told the Corinthians that the message of the cross was foolishness to the world, and indeed, Christians were thought of as morons. Tertullian, the great Christian theologian and pastor who lived from 160 to 230, wrote about heathen husbands who became angry with their wives because, in his words, their wives wanted to kiss martyrs' bonds, embrace Christians, and visit the cottages of the poor. See, what he was saying is that they had values that were so hugely different from those of the world. They wanted to use their time differently. They wanted to use their money differently. They wanted to give their loves and their passions in different places. Tertullian knew that being married to an unbeliever puts a stressor on the marriage. See, I love an old story of a a Christian wife who was getting herself ready to go to church. Her husband, a non-believer, was unreasonable, and he never had a kind word for her, and and he frequently wanted to control her life. And that day, as she was about to walk out the door, he sat in the armchair with a shotgun and, and pointed it straight at her and said, I'll kill you if you go off to that church. And she looked at him sweetly and said, you know, honey, if you pull that trigger, I'm going to heaven. And if you don't, I'm going to church. You know, the context here is that an unbeliever may not be ready to allow for their wife or husband to practice the faith, and the believer knows that he or she has an obligation of faithfulness to Jesus, and no demand of the unbeliever takes that obligation away. And so in the case of 1 Corinthians, the abandoning of the unbeliever assumes that the unbeliever is leaving because their partner is a believer, and they won't put up with their faith. What then should the believer do? You know, every impulse is to seek to reconcile, but how can we reconcile if the issue between us is Christ, his glory, his church, and the sharing of his gospel? Do we ever back off on that? Do we become less passionate about Christ? And the answer, says Paul, it's obvious in such cases. First, he says, let them go. You are called to peace. Accept this event with grace and with dignity, and don't compromise your faith. And second, each believer has a descending list of priorities. For instance, we know that as Christians, we're called to obey the government in all things. Well, basically, yes. What about stupid laws? Well, yeah, we're supposed to obey them as well. But, and this is crucial, every once in a while, the state will make a law we can't keep. For instance, what would we do if it became illegal in Canada to meet as believers or in some way practice our faith? Well, I tell you what we would do. We would meet secretly, but we would meet. What would we do if the state said we could no longer preach on certain themes of the Bible, like, for instance, texts on sexual purity? Well, we would still preach it. Why? Because we know that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we know that any law that contradicts Christ's law is out of line. We won't obey the state there. You know, it's the same thing in marriage. Every once in a while, I'll hear some believers say, you know, for the sake of your marriage and for the sake of being a witness to your spouse, don't go to church if that offends your husband. Well, what should you do? And the answer is, if your spouse wants us to do something that forbids obedience to Christ, he or she is out of line. 
That doesn't mean that believers act in an unloving fashion or that we become strident or an in-your-face attitude. Verse 14 dealt with that. True believers love their spouses and do all they can to bless their spouse. But what if following Christ wrecks our marriage? Well, then Paul says, let them go. Our first loyalty is to Christ. Now look at the second half of verse 15. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, I take that to mean that under such circumstances, verses 8 and 9 come into play. A great many believers have struggled with this verse. We've understood these verses that if the bond of marriage no longer applies, well, you must be free to remarry. And I think that's right. So Paul adds to the teaching of Jesus and gives another acceptable ground for divorce, the desertion of the unbelieving spouse. Jesus, you'll remember, had taught that in the case of repeated, unrepentant sin of sexual immorality, divorce was also permissible. In other words, in such cases, you are not bound to that marriage. You are free to pursue in such a case your choice of whether or not you should marry or not. And with that, we come to verse 16. How do you know whether your witness will save your spouse? You see, again, I come back to the issue of the believer who wants to marry an unbeliever by reasoning, well, maybe I can win them to Christ. Well, the Bible says you can't know that for sure. You can pray for it, but you have no biblical promise on that issue at all. See, the implication is simply this. Our loyalty to Christ takes precedence over our marriages straight up. But our loyalty to Christ causes us to care deeply about our marriage partner as well. Both of those are true. John, this is a pretty important subject, and we, we I don't know, see it a lot. When people will do something like get, getting married to an, uh, a non-Christian spouse, and later on they give their lives to the Lord, and somehow they justify what they've done by God's good grace uh, by bringing that spouse to the Lord, that's probably not the right approach. Yeah, I think we need to recognize that God is so much greater than our sin. Uh, It has sometimes happened that a person has sinned against the Lord, and then uh, as a result of that, God has been gracious notwithstanding our sin. And so we need to give thanks to the Lord, and we need to see this not as a, you know, some people will actually argue that because I married a non-Christian spouse, they came to the Lord, uh, God must have been for it in the first place instead of saying, God had mercy in spite of what I did. I think that's the approach. Thanks, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The faithful commitment of ministry friends across Canada is overwhelming. Again, this past June, you have successfully joined with us to accomplish our June fiscal year-end campaign goal, and we're filled overflowing with appreciation. Nearing the end of June, we were also presented with a $75,000 match pledge, and for every dollar given, another dollar was matched to support the ministry goals up to $75,000. Can I let you know that the same group has committed to an additional $75,000 match pledge in July? The summer's often a lean month financially, so your gift matched by this pledge will do so much to begin the new fiscal year strong. All of us working together to support the proclamation of God's Word. Join us with your gift this month toward our $75,000 match by calling 
1-800-663-2425, or give online at backtothebible.ca.